Welcome to Digital Health Talks. Each week, we meet with the healthcare leaders making a measurable difference in equity, access, and quality. Hear about what tech is worth investing in and what isn't as we focus on the innovations that deliver. Join me, Megan Antonelli, and my friend, Shahid Shah, for our weekly No BS Deep Dives into what's really making an impact in healthcare. Welcome back, Health Impact audience. You guys got a really good taste about uh, cybersecurity and other issues associated with all the technology that we've been deploying. But you know, one of the biggest problems that uh, we don't always talk about a lot because it seems like it's you know the, one of those solved problems about uh, how you do claims management and how do you do billing and those kind of areas. And it really turns out that those are not unsolved problems, that uh, in fact, it makes up significant percentages of the cost of healthcare institutions that they have to take care of bills and invoicing and getting patients who are late in paying to uh, pay and then sending, uh, getting payments from insurers, et cetera. And that's why I'm really excited to have this conversation with Automation Anywhere, who's been really focused on these things from both from a machine learning as well as robotic process automation. But more than that, just thinking about what are the fundamental problems of the complexity in, uh, in getting paid for the work that healthcare providers do? And if you look at that and just say, look, with all the technology we're putting in, how the heck do you still get paid for the work that you are doing? It's a, it's a, it's a real problem. And if you tack on the, uh, the, the new law, the, 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 surpri- the No Surprises Act or the uh, NSA, as it is uh, referred to by those working it, now you have this entire other problem where some, in the old days, you could say, all right, we missed a bill here. Somebody forgot to record something over there. And so I can just bill the patient for it. Well, now that's going to be called a surprise. And somehow you're going to be held to task for doing something nefarious, like surprising the uh, patient with a bill that you didn't know mm-hmm. you were going to accrue uh, before you did the presentation, before you did the service. So when you look at this complexity, you're like, man, there's got to be something out there that we can do to help reduce the administrative cost, get paid at or above what we want to without breaking uh, both ethical as well as actual laws around this uh, surprise billing. So that's why I'm really excited to have uh, Tyler and Yan uh, from Automation Anywhere to just break Mm -hmm. this down into layman's terms about what is going on and what do we need to do. So with that, uh, Yan, please introduce yourself and then I'll have Tyler do the same and then I'll ask you the first question. Thank you, Shahid. My name is Yan Chow. I'm a physician, pediatrician by training. I spent 32 years at Kaiser Permanente, the last eight years as the chief um, innovation officer for the, the nation. Also spent a lot of time in biotech with Amgen, working on digital medicine, as well as in Washington, working with the VA and DOD on startup technologies. So I was, I've been with Automation Anywhere for about two and a half years, uh, helping to launch the healthcare vertical. So it's I'm glad to be here and glad to meet everybody. Fantastic. Uh, Tyler, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, just describe what is Automation Anywhere and what do you guys do? Sure. My name is Tyler Stoll. Uh, I've been here at Automation Anywhere for about three years. I run the revenue cycle uh, management practice. been in healthcare for about 20 years, Mm -hmm. uh, doing various uh, platform deployments and consulting, bringing efficiencies and and automation through business process management, automated workflow, as well as RPA. Uh, So what do we do? We uh, drive net efficiencies around cash management, 
revenue cycle recovery uh, and management. So the team looks at the various uh, providers that are out there and we see what we can bring in terms of value to shorten the time to cash as well as compressing their uh, denials volume to reduce the amount of write-offs that the CFO has to uh, make month, month to month. Yeah. And one thing that I love about what Automation Anywhere does is that it gives us the ability to go pay for all the other stuff that you want to do. Like if you can actually do this right, you actually get paid for the work that you do. You will have then some money left over to do all the other cool technology stuff that you want to do and all the other uh, go to Mars programs that we all really Mm -hmm. want to work on. So it's one of those things where if you don't handle Mm -hmm. the payment side of things and you don't handle the uh, money, uh, the cash flow side of your business, you can't actually do anything else, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't hire people, you can't do any more technology stuff. Stuff. So that's why it's really, really important. So before we jump into the detail, mm-hmm. yeah, and just tell what just tell, what the heck is this No Surprises Act and and uh, how the how are we supposed to know what mm-hmm. is a surprise or what is not a surprise when it <laughs> comes to billing? Uh, just tell us what's going on here. Well, there's a lot of surprises to go around in healthcare, of course, but the No Surprises Act, which was passed by Congress late 2020, went into effect just a couple of days ago on January 1st really takes aim at the unanticipated or surprise medical bills that come to normal healthcare consumers. It turns out that two out of every three Americans worry a lot about these bills, which average about $600, but can be well over $100,000. So how do these charges get generated? Well, surprise medical bills happen when insured patients receive care from hospitals, physicians, or other providers who do not belong to that patient's insurance company's uh, network. Mm. Patients are often unaware, actually, this is happening. And I'd like to share a slide that takes a look at the high-level process. So let me go ahead and share the screen. This is the traditional process, and I'll walk through it a little bit. I think it may help to have an audience understand it. So normally in healthcare, a patient gets sick, They receive medical services, number one, when they go into a hospital, and the hospital utilizes both providers that are in-network, in the network of the insurance uh, payer that the patient is enrolled in, as well as out-of-network providers. Later on, when the care is done and and the patient is discharged, the hospital submits a consolidated claim to the insurer. And of course, the insurer will, in response, pay the coverage amount, the amount that they are contracted to pay. And then what happens is, of course, the hospital balance bills the patient, and that's the surprise, the very unpleasant surprise that happens. So with the with the No Surprises Act, in 2022, this is going to be what happens. The patient first must receive a good faith estimate if they're uninsured or they're self-pay. And this is really important. This uh, GFE, we call it, before they agree to medical services, And if the ultimate cost is over $400 over this estimate, then they can arbitrate for a nominal amount. And this is really important. So now the uninsured patient is at much less risk of getting a a surprise bill. Second thing is, of course, they go into the hospital, get the care from both in and out of network providers. But now instead of balanced billing, the hospital and the insurer must engage in an independent arbitration process to negotiate the payment of the costs exceeding coverage. And I think this is really interesting because it does protect some population of patients. Now, does this apply to 
patients on Medicare, Medicaid, and in-health service, on, it doesn't because those, those uh, programs have their own protections. So this is the actual process of the negotiation between the provider and the payer. It's a three to four month process. And uh, I've outlined some of the steps that could be automatable actually, because this process is going to require a lot of resources, a lot of time, investment on both the payers and provider's side. And so this is really interesting because it's very early, it's early in the days of this act, but as people start to think about what it takes to do this for, you know, for quite a few patients potentially is going to have a huge impact. So I think that's a, it's a very interesting act because it's very focused on the patient, but it's going to affect, as you said, the, the revenue collection piece of the puzzle quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, now that was great. Uh, so tell us a little bit about it. And Tyler, you're welcome to jump into here is mm-hmm. what is the reality of the impacts? If you do nothing, let's just, you say, mm-hmm. Hey, I don't even care about this. No surprises thing. I, I, mm-hmm. It's not going to mean anything to me in my daily work, uh, et cetera. What, what is the risk to health systems mm-hmm. by kind of ignoring what the no surprises act is doing? And yeah, and you can start and then Tyler, you can jump in. Yeah. I think obviously the impact of the act is potentially huge. It changes the revenue cycle, which is the the major uh, piece of the puzzle, the major part of the um, operations that that is so important to healthcare. Patients, of course, will benefit in not having to worry about these unanticipated um, charges. And uh, actually, analysts have looked at the the NSA and estimate it will make less than 1% difference to insurance premiums. So that's really good. The insurers themselves will probably experience significant impact from the resources required to engage in this process. And I think that's something that they're starting to find out, they're starting to work out. And this is a great opportunity for automation, of course, because um, the, the goal of automation is to make a lot of the repetitive manual processes work much better. I think the most important impact will be for providers like hospitalists, uh, hospitals, specialists, especially in the emergency room, anesthesiology radiology, and strangely enough, air ambulances that are going to be affected because they have traditionally stayed out of provider networks so they can charge more. And, you know, it's in some cases, it's it makes economic sense because they may be the only provider in a small town or whatever, so they will stay out of the network. But, uh, of course, with the NSA, many provider organizations are now concerned that the NSA states that during arbitration, the starting benchmark for an acceptable reimbursement is the in-network rate. So, of course, the payer has huge power because all they need to do is set a very low rate. And that's where the arbitration, the arbitrator is supposed to start, uh, which is, of course, going to engender a lot of pushback from the providers. So the other thing is from a, the financial perspective, a doctor, whether they're in a network or not, is now for all intents and purposes in the network. And so I can anticipate that there'll be a huge influx or maybe maybe a huge influx of new physicians into networks, which will put demand on credentialing. It'll put demand on resources of the hospital and so on and so forth. The other interesting impact is that if there's less cost difference among specialists, there'll be increased demand for premium specialists, people who work at Harvard, Stanford, and so on and so forth. So for the non-premium specialists, how do you compete? There'll be more incentive to do unique differentiated capabilities, out-of-pocket payments, specialty niches, training in certain advanced techniques, and so on and so forth. And for the premium specialists, there'll be more incentive to prioritize high-profit services that are covered. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's going to be very interesting to see. But I think ultimately only time will tell how the balance of power will shift between providers and payers. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. So I mean, you did some beautiful explanations there. So you know, cut, mm-hmm. cut back uh, months of reading into the in the nice digestible few minutes here. Tyler, extend on that and say um, also if you want to expand on how real this is and what it will mean day to day. But it seems to me the first and biggest risk area mm-hmm. is in coming up with that GFE. If you don't get that GFE right, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like all the other problems are going to just be downstream. So expand on what Yan was mentioning and how real this is and what it matters. And then say, well, how the heck do you handle this GFE uh, using your current business processes if you can? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll first uh, look at it from the provider billing perspective, right? The CFO each month has to write off a certain percentage based on a various uh, number of factors. We know that in the market today, there's a, there's a huge later labor shortage in the medical billing uh, space, uh, in, the, in the provider space itself. So there's ever exceeding backlogs. And so those thresholds, those write-off thresholds uh, continue to to increase, so there's lost revenue. So what this opportunity provides is uh, to the market is an opportunity to recover some of that lost revenue. What we've seen in Texas, and Texas was one of the first states, the Department of Insurance, as we began to look at the use case, the ruling, there were certain parameters there that, you know, the set a threshold of say $5,000, you could bundle a number of uh, previously denied claims, but it cannot exceed the $5,000 mark. And there's case assembly. So with those denials, you have to assemble a large packet of information uh, that has to provide all the necessary information to adjudicate the case. There's a legal review. Um, So we're seeing there's a lot of labor required to comply with this law. Um, So you think in terms of the backlog of cases that could be created by trying to comply uh, if if you're unsuccessful in the arbitration case, you could lose that, which is further losses. If you're successful, but let's say that the case costs you $1,000 to assemble, your maximum recovery would be 4000 if the threshold were five. So it brings up a very interesting mathematical problem. Even though the RevCycle teams and the CFOs would very much want to recover that lost revenue, the way and manner in which you have to expend labor to get to that filing, plus the percentage of wins versus losses, make it a very labor-intensive effort. We do have customers that have been looking at it. There are other states that are could be coming online. Each state Department of Insurance may have its own you know, package thresholds and things like that. That's to be determined. So there are some unknowns, but it seems to be, at least on the face, that there's going to be a lot of effort, human effort, mm-hmm. five hours, eight hours per case in order to get the package out the door. Yeah. And, and so, Tyler, what you're saying mm-hmm. is, one, you can't ignore it. Two, uh, the benefit, if you do ignore it, will accrue basically to the patient because mm-hmm. they don't have to pay it or they can mm-hmm. somehow fight for it now differently uh, than they were before. Mm-hmm. But what you're saying most importantly is that it is an automatable problem, right? This is mm-hmm. not like one of those things where you say that, uh, oh, we're not quite sure how we would automate it or we have to do mm-hmm. years of discovery to figure out how do we, no, this is a, mm-hmm. it's a law problem and it's a finance problem, mm-hmm. both of which have the ability to be automated. So just co- provide some color commentary on how automatable is this? You, is it mm-hmm. a is it a buy it, set it, and forget it, or is it a buy it, let uh, automation anywhere, train personnel, uh, and then continue to operate in partnership? How does that work? Well, I think um, the the RevCycle function would require a allocated team 
to have bot-assisted case assembly, uh, to understand the submission uh, policies and rules set forth for each arbitration case, and then to create the necessary form letters, if you will, uh, that, that capture all of the fields and all of the medical record uh, components. Now, you can't release the medical record, but you have to make reference to it. So all of the necessary elements in form letter complying with the state uh, filing requirements that would allow an arbitration team to review the case mm-hmm. and reach out to begin to begin case review. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that is probably 90% automatable. Uh, the human effort would have to be to review uh, a legal attestation to make sure that everything is accurate prior to submission. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at, say, a five-hour effort fully manual, you're less than an hour to do so mm-hmm. with bot-assisted support for that case filing. Yeah, and I think there's different parts of the process. That's really good, Tyler. I think there's a federal and a state aspect to this. Uh, and every state, of course, is different. But just as an example, um, Shahid, you mentioned the... the um, good faith estimate, GFE. And I think that there, there are different kinds of patients. The first patient is the uninsured, the self-insured, uninsured. That's where the GFE is required. What does that require? It means that you have to have instant or near instant um, access to all the factors that go into that estimate. And that's a process of data gathering that's very tedious and sometimes subject to human error. And so if you give the wrong estimate, you're going to be in huge trouble. The other kind of patient is the insured patient. And for that patient, you need to understand their coverage. And this is becoming a very important point. If you don't know the coverage and what it covers, what it doesn't cover, then you're going to start as a hospital administrator, you start allowing the doctors to start ordering specialists to come in and who is not cutting in the network or maybe in a network. All these kinds of things may or may not be covered. If you don't understand how the patient's coverage is, um, how, how wide it is, how broad, how deep, uh, you're on the hook. You know, yeah. you will have to go and argue with the payer later. And I think that's that's causing a lot of worry <laughs> among providers. Yeah, and and did did, you, did I hear you correctly that the GFE is only required for uninsured? Uninsured, you, you meant right. both, right? Right, uninsured, and no, it's not required for the insured. But for the insured, the the onus is on the provider to actually understand the coverage. The coverage, right? And then yeah. so uh, so for the uninsured, you have to do the GFE, and for mm-hmm. the insured, the, the thing that should scare everybody is that if you do something in which you then have to fight with a payer afterward. Mm-hmm. That's a exactly. lose lose problem. Right? <laughs> exactly. So, uh, that is it. something you want to absolutely avoid. <laughs> right. And that's really where, uh, so Dr. Chow, talk a little bit about mm-hmm. what could the healthcare systems be doing today to better prepare for this? So, even mm-hmm. before you bring in, say, an automation solution like Automation Anywhere mm-hmm. and bring in uh, personnel and services to help there, how do you get your own house in order so that you're mm-hmm. ready for the Automation Anywhere to come in and help? Mm-hmm. So I think at the point that a patient comes in to need services, you have to have a mechanism and it's usually going to be automated or will have to be automated to understand where each physician that you contract with is in terms of the network that that patient belongs to and what services are covered under that arrangement, as well as the qualifications of that physician. You know, So uh, all that stuff is not just to help you understand your risk but also to negotiate with a payer. So for instance, if you understand, like I mentioned before, that you have to use a neurosurgeon and they're the only guy, you know, or he or she is the only guy within 10 miles and there's an emergency, you have a good basis for claiming that you had no choice and the payer would have to pay that. So, but you have to know that you have to understand the risk factors. I think that's the piece that's missing 
when you, in healthcare, because of all the silos, we often don't have a holistic picture and we can't make a cogent argument. You know? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. So as you start to think about this and say, all right, you know, surprise billing is here. It's the law. Um, if you don't handle it, you could potentially be losing mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of dollars, depending on how big your uh, right. organization is. You have to do a little bit of preparation work, and then you can bring in uh, the automation anywhere type of solution. Mm-hmm. What does that look like uh, as far as um, bringing you guys in? What, what do you do actually for that? Mm-hmm. Is it uh, pure technology mostly mm-hmm. or technology plus services? And mm-hmm. Tyler, you want if you want to talk a little about the execution side, and then mm-hmm. Dr. Chow, you can talk a little bit about what parts of the care process, if anything, need to change in mm-hmm. order to properly handle uh, the uh, surprise building. So Tyler, we'll let you go first about what, what does it mean on the ground when you guys come in? Sure. So uh, we have a dedicated healthcare practice uh, led by Dr. Chouse, and we have a, a number of uh, uh, professionals that support the team. We tend to like to understand, you know, the underlying data. What are the What's the denial volumes look like? How's the data stored so that we can think through how to uh, assemble the packaging? Uh, We tend to issue a certain amount of licenses necessary to support and facilitate that use case. These designs, uh, if you begin in, say, um, March, uh, we can have a a production run up and running in about two to three months for that particular use case, uh, depending on the uh, the complexity. So having access to the necessary data, that's important. Most teams have that. Uh, The form letters, right? And it's just then piecing it together based on the specific state, the rules, the filing guidelines. So you can kind of go through a checklist. The Mm -hmm. bots will execute that checklist very quickly. So before you submit it, the worker will look, is everything in order, hit the submit button, or then mm-hmm. manually submit it, and uh, you're off. You're off and on your way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Chow, how would you? Uh, how would you? Yeah. subscribe. Yeah, I, I think that um, you know there is a process that seems to work well. Uh, it includes you know understanding the for the for the customer to understand us and for us to understand the customer. But it's interesting because um, I think this is this NSA. Um, event is going to really change the way we look at transparency for patients. You know, you've talked about what differences it make to a patient. You know, when you go into a, a, a restaurant these days, it's very interesting. You see the calorie count for every item. So when you pick from a menu, like you would in a hospital, you know, if you can understand the cost and the qualification of the surgeon, you know, if you were, co- uh, you know, your cognitive ability were, were good enough to understand, you know, that you can make a judgment. I can see the day coming when, when transparency of that degree will be required. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it'll do perhaps do away with a lot of proprietary agreements and things that are under the table, including payer side. So I think it's going to affect the patient from a visibility point of view. And I think that will probably help them be more comfortable with the decisions that are made because they have a they may have a better say in saying, you know, I'd rather choose this or I'd rather pay for that surgeon, even though it's more, you know, that kind of thing. But I think for the for the patient, hopefully, the advent of value-based payment will keep the quality high because you can imagine that one criticism is the payers will go to the lowest price, you know, all the time. So yeah, yeah. You know. So uh, Dr. Chow, talk about this problem where this is a brand new law. Not everybody understands it. Mm-hmm. You guys have a much better idea about it than most other people. But who have you worked with? You don't have to mention actual customer names, but mm-hmm. uh, give us maybe a large health system with n number of beds uh, worked uh, with us on ABC. What I'd love to hear is what are some of these originators of this project now? I mean, the mm-hmm. rule has just gone into effect. What are they doing? Where are they getting stuck? Mm-hmm. 
And how are you helping them, you know, with new revenue capture or revenue capture that they didn't not did not know would be possible? Mm-hmm. I think it depends on the mix of patients that a hospital has. You know, as I mentioned, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, VA, all that is they have their own protections against uh, surprise billing, and so. Mm-hmm. If the hospital mostly deals with those patients, they should see fairly minimal impact. You know? But as we know, in healthcare, a lot of hospitals have legacy systems that don't work so good. <laughs> and so they often will have trouble responding to new laws that require new data reporting, new monitoring requirements. And so I think a lot of hospitals are in the evaluation mode because it, the law really kicked in January 1st. So we're right at the beginning. And they're trying to figure out what it would take human or bot-wise you know, to, to take care of this. And I know Tyler has been working with some organizations and maybe Tyler, you can speak to that a little bit about the issues and, and some of the um, uh, insights that you've gotten. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we, we work with uh, primarily RevCycle teams. Uh, they have a lot of infrastructure and data at their fingertips. So it's really understanding the denial trends of which of the denied cases are mm-hmm. arbitratable. Do they, do they fit the state filing rule? Each state, because we're not completely sure, will have a different set of filing requirements. In uh, Texas, for example, it was a $5,000 threshold. So you can bundle a number of claims not to exceed 5,000. So you look at the total uh, denial volume and you go through an exercise to say, okay, first of all, are all of these uh, arbitratable? Do they meet the conditions? If yes, then how do we bundle them? And then uh, on a payer basis, you know, collecting all of the data in form letter format so that the case can be compiled to meet the threshold, reviewed, an attestation made, and then a submission made. Um, and then just keeping an eye on the labor because you're going to it's going to require a number of people in a department to sort of dedicate their their time. So if you're going after a thousand cases a year, what does that look like in terms of of effort and and is it worth it? Mm-hmm. But if you're going after 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 cases, depending on your size as an organization. So it's really basic mathematics. And I think that's where a combination of you know a healthcare team that understands the reg, that can help interpret, that can help work with you on the state uh, filing requirements, and then inform the RevCycle team how to do it, right? How to assemble these cases, leveraging automation technology uh, to compress the, the labor required to, to get those cases out the door um, and, uh, and win. Yeah, yeah. And so, Tyler, as you mm-hmm. think about the objective of, of automation and uh, any intelligent automation that you would work on, it mm-hmm. seems like you want to focus on two subject areas. One is maybe the GFE, make sure making sure that's correct on all the other risk areas that, that Dr. Mm-hmm. Chai talked about. But uh, it seems like the dispute resolution process is where everything might get stuck. So mm-hmm. what have you guys learned so far? It's early days, but what are you learning mm-hmm. about what is uh, the difficulty of dispute resolution uh, based on lack of information? Uh, any color commentary mm-hmm. on the dispute resolution process itself? Uh, let me just um, throw up the slide again. Yeah. If you don't mind. And sure, go if you it. look at this process, um, it's quite a lengthy process. And what the law says is that they're giving essentially two months for the hospital and the payer to settle. <laughs> and if, if they can't do it, then they go into the IDR process, the independent dispute resolution process. So there's a lot of chance that the hospital with some experience can look at this process and go, okay, it's going to cost us 
uh, X amount of dollars to go beyond the settlement piece. And so they have an incentive to settle, right? But let's say a significant number of patients go through and they can't cannot agree payer and provider. And so they go into this process, which is in the right upper corner here. Then they notify HHS and they want to initiate this. And then pretty soon after that, they have to start to choose an arbitrator. And of course, at any of these steps, there could be an they could be a glitch. <laughs> they may not agree to arbitrator. And right now, I think there's only a few arbitrators uh, approved by HHS. So it's a neutral party. They identify the entity, and then they have to prepare the case for each side. And that's, like Tyler was saying, on the state level, that's a lot of information you have to gather. Medical information, justification, you know, the providers available, who's qualified to do the case, all these kinds of things have to be have to be factored in, built into the case. And then with this NSA process, you submit the the information, your best case. And then within 30 days, the arbitrator makes a decision. And it's um it's interesting. It's called baseball style rules. <laughs> that is, they pick one or the other. There's no, there's no compromise. <laughs> so so you have to make the best case you can. And then uh, the other party, the losing party, will pay for the cost of this whole process, which is set at $200 to $500 per determination. But you can imagine if there's 10 patients, that's $5,000. If there's 100 patients, that's fifty. So, so it can go up pretty fast. And so the cost of the process and the time and the people it takes, what automation can do is make this much less costly much faster. And so it gives you an alternative essentially to settling for something that you really don't want to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the hidden message. It's still, like I said, uh, Shahid is very early. Nobody knows the level of risk because there's not enough experience to, to understand how to make that judgment, you know, how to go forward or really try to settle. And I think for the patient, the great thing is that they don't have to think about this. <laughs> you know, yeah, they, yeah. they kind of let, let their insurer, of course, if they cost too much money, the payer may, may send them on to another payer, but you know, that, yeah. that's down the line. Down the yeah, line. And I think that was the most important part of this discussion is that mm -hmm. what is flipping between the before the act and after the act is yeah. that hospitals yeah. could have just said, they're going to fight yeah. with Shahid directly. Yeah. Now Shahid's like, hey, dude, this is not my problem. You have to <laughs> right. fight with the payers directly. That's right. And that's, that's a right. big, big shift. That's not Huge. a small thing that uh, that yeah. changed on the side. It's a massive shift. Mm -hmm. And now we have to think about it in two ways. Do we kind of like let it go and see what happens uh, or mm -hmm. uh, think about it in a more disciplined manner? And I, and I would recommend this maybe in the last couple of minutes uh, that we have left in our talk here is if you did this properly for the Surprise Billing Act, um, mm -hmm. You're going to put in intelligent automation. Uh, you've got the capabilities uh, mm -hmm. to do all the uh, the packaging and everything. What side benefits would you get? Uh, mm -hmm. And and either you know, Dr. Chow or, or Tyler, you either one of you could say, look, if you just did this anyway, mm -hmm. unrelated to surprise billing, here are the three or four other things you would benefit out of just doing this work anyway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I could I could take a first stab. When we work with our RevCycle customers and we analyze their business and their KPIs, mm -hmm. uh, we spot you know the the reasons for denials, the spikes, and we go after those 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 high volume denials and, and address those first. Once you're operating with a customer for six or eight or ten months, you start to see downward trend. Uh, you start to see faster cash recovery. You start to see a smaller uh, backlog, which is very very good. But wait, so hang uh, on, this, what you're saying is just by the act of you guys helping to look and analyze, mm -hmm, you're making improvements mm -hmm. anyway. Is that what you're saying, well, Tyler? 
Actually, when we're in production. So if we're in production with a number of you know status acquisitions, fully automatable uh, denials, about 37% um, straight through processing on average for a large provider system, the CFO starts to take notice because now his write-off thresholds can start to reduce. And that's very positive for cash flow and the balance sheet. During COVID, you know, we've seen access to healthcare decline precipitously and denials spike, which is the mm. perfect storm uh, for trouble for, for mm. cash. And with reduced labor, that's now an added pressure. So automation creates a, a resilience buffer that gives the CFO additional tools to go down the stack. So maybe mm-hmm. he writes off everything below 250. Now he can go down and pursue everything to $50 because the bots will go through and, and many mm-hmm. of the claims are just you know a single appeals package and they straight through process. Mm-hmm. So they can recover more revenue with less less labor, mm-hmm. less effort, less cost. Great, and 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 Dr. Chow, yeah. this is the last minute that we have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anything you would add to that? What benefits yeah, do you get I, accrued otherwise? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that really uh, struck me about this kind of technology is the uh, size of the benefit, and it's almost unbelievable. But we've seen, you know, repeatedly uh, in the industry that you can now handle, you can automate millions of transactions, you can get over hundreds and maybe even millions of hours saved, which is huge in healthcare because we're so short of people. Uh, accuracy to 100%, which is always nice. The human error rate is about 5 to 10%. That's rework and expensive rework. So we can cut that out. Productivity usually goes up by about 30, 40% for the folks that are working with these uh, digital assistants. And the cost savings for the CFO, 30 to 40%, mostly in the form of FTE cost savings. And most organizations do not lay off people because they're so short. And so they, they repurpose the people, they become much more productive and you know raise all kinds of other metrics. But um, I think this is one really good approach to this new kind of regulation, this really big change in revenue cycle. And I'm very hopeful that it'll sort of start us on the road to redesigning medicine. Yeah. And I, and I love the way that uh, Tyler said mm-hmm. it earlier as well. And I think you just doubled down on that is that mm-hmm. t- don't treat this law as something being done to you, mm-hmm. but as an opportunity to say, look, we're gonna, we needed yeah. to do all this stuff anyway. Yeah, Let's Take this opportunity, get the automation going. And 80% of it might help for uh, other things mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to 20% specifically right. for just the No Surprises Act. So that's how mm-hmm. I think the most innovative mm-hmm. health systems uh, look at these kind of problems when a new right. law comes out is don't think something is being done to you. <laughs> yeah. Your patients are actually going to be happier, right? Because yeah. they're seeing exactly. that they're coming to an organization that's going to help them make sure that they mm-hmm. don't get surprised. So take right. that as an action and then use what is uh, required on you anyway mm-hmm to right. get an enormous amount of other benefits that you guys have right. already uh, stipulated uh, a number of times. So that's fantastic. I mean, I, I can see no reason why you wouldn't just want to start to give, do this intelligent uh, automation anyway. So any last minute uh, words that you want to add, uh, uh, Yen or Tyler? No, thank you for having us on. I think it was a good opportunity to start looking at what I'm sure will be first in a number of different uh, kinds of laws coming out to increase visibility, transparency, uh, sort of the equal the equalize the playing field in a sense. And so I think medicine is taking some of the necessary steps, maybe being pushed by regulation, but taking some of the necessary steps to really become sustainable in yeah. the 21st century. Right now it's not sustainable. 
That's fantastic. All right, great. And we've got another uh, power uh, panel right after this talking about uh, how you can do good patient engagement and then uh, tie that into proper patient satisfaction. So this is perfect uh, about costs and and, uh, charges uh, rolling right into uh, some really good uh, patient engagement from the Emmy team. So thank you so much, uh, Tyler and Yan, for this explanation. Helps us Mm -hmm. all understand what all this is about. And for the Health Impact audience, please join us in our next session. Great. Thank you, Shahid. Thank you, Shahid. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this week's Health Impacts Digital Health Talk. Don't miss another podcast. Subscribe at digitalhealthtalks.com. And to join us at our next face-to-face event, visit healthimpactlive.com.